You're listening to On the Record Offscript. My name is Mark Coffin, and I'm your host. In the next couple episodes of the Offscript podcast, we're going to explore the nitty gritty of who has what kind of power to make things happen within the government of Nova Scotia, in and around Province House. We'll unpack how cabinet and the premier's office work alongside ministers' offices and how the powers of executive decision making are used in Nova Scotia politics. This week, we'll explore how an MLA can get something done in the House, wherever they find themselves, be they on the opposition or on the government benches. This episode of On the Record Offscript is supported in part by HelloFresh. HelloFresh is the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. I was unfairly jealous of my friends who live in bigger cities in Canada for a while because I knew that those places got HelloFresh. What I didn't know until recently is that HelloFresh is here, in Nova Scotia. And not only is it in places like Halifax, but rural Nova Scotia as well. I live in rural Nova Scotia, and like many folks out here, I can't even get high-speed internet where I live. I can't get decent internet where I live, but I can get HelloFresh. Each week, HelloFresh creates delicious new recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes to prepare for anybody from a novice to a seasoned home cook, and I include myself in the novice category. You get fresh ingredients and you get the exact amount you need, so there's no food waste, all delivered right to your doorstep in a special insulated box. On the Record Offscript listeners can get 50% off their first box by going to hellofresh.ca slash on the record. I enjoy cooking, but I don't enjoy all the stuff that usually comes before cooking, like waiting in lines, making a meal plan for the week, and it's not fun having a bunch of leftover ingredients that end up going to waste. HelloFresh takes the pain and thinking out of cooking and leaves you with just the fun parts. So try it out. Go to hellofresh.ca slash on the record and get 50% off your first box. You all gotta eat. This week, we asked the question, how does an MLA on each side of the house approach getting something done? From a procedural perspective, all MLAs, government, or opposition have the same rights and privileges on the floor of the House of Assembly. But as we know from MLAs you've heard from in previous episodes... The House is a place of performance. That is not where the work gets done. We couldn't put forth a bill because nobody would look at it or read it even when it was something that was really good for the community. And that was disappointing. I thought the legislature would be a place where everyone would come around and we'd debate like a debating society and debate ideas and plans and come up with, you know, good policies. No, it's just theater. Just theater. No decisions are made there. Whether we were talking to an opposition MLA or a government MLA, if they wanted to get something done, they learned relatively quickly that it couldn't really get done through the legislature. An effective government MLA, as we've heard from those who have been in government, generally used behind-the-scenes channels to get something done. We're not talking about small-scale things like filling potholes or helping a constituent get seen by a medical specialist. We're talking about the bigger things, things that cost a lot of money or perhaps require a law to be changed. For example, when George Archibald was a backbencher in the governing party and wanted a new hospital for his riding. So how did you get that hospital, I guess? Like, how did you try and get that hospital in Kentville? Or was that something that had been kind of promised by the people? No, nobody promised it before. I talked to the Minister of Health. I talked to the... Uh, I wasn't in Cabinet. I talked to the Cabinet Ministers, and I kept at it and at it and at it, and I kept inviting whoever happened to Minister of Health to the Valley and kept setting up meetings with the Department, and we just wore them down. Okay. It, was, it wasn't something that was frivolous. It was something that was needed. And... Uh, 
And after a while, it took four years, but after a while they agreed to do it. They always agreed. You know, when you know what you want, then you go after it, you're going to get it. You know, and if it's not silly, it's like that all the time. You know, when I saw a need, got it. There's only one thing I wanted in my writing, and that was the hospital. And they all knew it, and they got sick of me talking about it. Okay. You know, you wear them down. And did you speak about it in the house itself, as well as caucus, or...? Not so much, no. Okay. You don't accomplish, you know, you can't accomplish a whole lot in the, in the house. You know, that's for fun and questions and stuff like that. In an earlier episode, we heard from Pam Birdsall, a backbench MLA in the recent NDP government in Nova Scotia, and she shared a similar story about her experience getting major funding to repair a road in her constituency used to transport Christmas trees. She first went to the minister, then to caucus, and her work to get this road work done never had to go through the legislature. According to the ex-MLAs who tried to get things done from the backbenches of the governing party, initiating something in the legislature just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. Their calls to the people who were making decisions, ministers, deputies, and the political staff of government, got a far warmer reception than someone from the opposition might get, so it made more sense to take those matters offline or outside the theater of the legislature. Perhaps if it were an issue of legislation or major funding, that issue would eventually land on the House floor as legislation or as part of a budget, but before it got to that point, it would have gotten the blessing of the minister responsible, and in some cases, cabinet and caucus. For members of the opposition, how they go about getting something done is a bit different. Before we explore what it is that MLAs can do at the legislature and opposition, it's worth reflecting on what it is they would want to do. Generally, they want two things. They want an issue address, which could mean getting funding for a project or program, or it could mean legislation that offers protections for a certain group of people, or advantages for a certain industry. The second thing an opposition party wants is to move to a better political position than the one they are in right now. They want the kind of attention from voters that will mean they'll get more votes in the next election so that after the next election, they can become the government. So that when they are in government, they can pass all of the bills they'd like to pass and they can fund all of the things they want to fund. In order to look good in the eyes of the voter, the opposition will either want to take some of the credit for the good things that the government does or maintain the ability to point a finger at the bad things that government has done. These two things, getting an issue addressed and gaining power, can be at odds with one another, especially in a minority legislature. Working closely with the government minister now might get progress on one issue, but it isn't always perceived as helpful when it comes to gaining power in the next election. To better understand when a politician might want to take one tact over another, and how they would do so, it helps to explore the difference for opposition politicians in a minority versus majority government situation. See, in, in, a, in a minority government, uh, you would never table a bill unless you knew you were going to pass it or it was some signature bill that you wanted to differentiate yourself from the opposition because in a minority government, unless you have some commitment from one or the other parties to support you, it ain't going to go through. Minorities are very different than majorities in that way. Mark Parent was the environment minister when the progressive conservatives had a minority government under Rodney McDonald and depended on one of the opposition parties to support any of their legislation. Yeah, yeah you would have those conversations before you got there. And so when you got there, it would be, it would be uh, as I say, theater, uh, where the parties 
if they're going to support it, would be positioning themselves to get the maximum benefit out of supporting it. Mm-hmm. You know? And you'd be having to, in a minority government, if you wanted their support, to be sort of playing to that a bit. Well, we're so grateful that the opposition, you know, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the decision was made beforehand. As the opposition party in these sorts of situations, there was an opportunity to either get changes in the bill before agreeing to support it, before it got to the legislature floor, or to get a commitment for something unrelated to the bill in exchange for support of the bill. So if you can get an influential person or group to say, you know, this, this, uh, this bill needs to pass, um, then, you know, a government in a minority situation will look at it and say... You know, we hate this bill. It's not We don't want it. But if we do this, this, this budget might pass. Leonard underscored the point that just like when an MLA from the government caucus wanted something done, the negotiations would happen behind the scenes, usually between each party's House leader, before anything ever reached the House floor. Any negotiation would take place between the House leaders. The, you know, the, the MLAs don't really get involved in, in those types of uh, negotiations. The only negotiating you do is with your own party caucus. Um, generally, the parties don't like MLAs negotiating privately across uh, across the floor. That's not to say we don't have relationships and we talk to each other. You know, I often walked across the floor after I'd heard an MLA speak and go over and say, you know, I, I, I like that idea. Or I, I, you know, where do you think you're going to go with that or what do you want to do? And uh, especially when we were in government, you know, we tried to... Uh, incorporate some of that into uh, into legislation but uh, by and large uh, that work in opposition happens between the ho- the house leaders and the leaders sometimes will get involved but mostly it's the house leaders when it's a majority government the math changes the game entirely for the opposition MLAs There's no self-interest-based incentive to work with the government, since the government doesn't have to rely on the opposition to get their budgets and major pieces of legislation through the House. There may be other kinds of incentives that would motivate a governing party to work with the opposition, and there are always a handful of pieces of legislation that do start in opposition and make their way through the legislature. But these pieces of legislation are the exceptions and not the rule. So remember what we noted earlier about the goals of opposition MLAs, about what they generally wanted to do. They want to get an issue addressed in their community or in the province at large, and they want to position themselves to be in a better place than they are, to move from opposition to being in government at the next election. Even if an opposition MLA has collaborative tendencies, good people skills, skills that would be helpful in a minority situation and virtually any other workplace, using those skills isn't necessarily rewarded when it comes to relating to a majority government. So a great deal of effort gets spent on using more competitive and adversarial tactics. That's where the reward is, where the desired outcome doesn't necessarily put the party in a position to influence any short-term progress, but may help them better associate themselves with a position in the press, and presumably, improve their chances in the next election. The two main strategies opposition MLAs can use to do this are questioning the government and filibustering. Both strategies can be employed in the House itself and at committee. Let's start with questioning. The two primary venues that the opposition has a chance to question the government and the people who work for it are in the House during question period and at the Public Accounts Committee. You know what happens in question period. Opposition MLAs question cabinet ministers and the premier. Cabinet ministers and the premier aren't necessarily being particularly forthcoming, and both sides are trying to present themselves to be seen in the most favorable light possible. 
But the second area where MLAs get to ask questions is in the Committee on Public Accounts, and it's different than question period. In the Public Accounts Committee, members of the committee can compel virtually anybody before the committee in order to testify. Opposition MLAs tend to focus on deputy ministers and senior civil servants within the bureaucracy, but they can also compel testimony from others as well. Arms like agencies like Nova Scotia Business Inc., officers of the legislature like the Auditor General, or even professional associations that are somehow connected to government like Doctors Nova Scotia. These are some of the folks that have recently gone to be witnesses in front of the committee. Much like a court, the testimony collected from a witness to such a committee is done under oath. The people who are asked to come before the committee are generally not elected officials, and there is a greater necessity to give full and truthful answers than one is required to give in question period. MLAs on the committee also have more time to question witnesses, like a courtroom lawyer who can carefully plan their questions. If an MLA is patient enough and talented enough, they can lead a witness into a place where all the MLA is doing is asking questions while the witness fills in the gaps that will fill the next day's newspapers with stories. Former NDP MLA and Finance Minister Graham Steele was one of the people who other MLAs and journalists regarded as skillful at the Public Accounts Committee during his time in opposition. So I was on the Public Accounts Committee from early on, and I really used that as a forum to, because it was the one committee that the reporters would, would attend, and I knew that if I did a good job there that I'd get in the news. And, and so for me, doing a good job in the legislative work um, had a political purpose, had an electoral purpose, because it helped me raise my profile. Graham's experience working as a lawyer gave him the background he needed to do well at that committee. I was very comfortable questioning people and what you had to do to do a good job of questioning people, uh, how to be prepared for it. If, if people were giving you evasive answers, how do you deal with it? The point of questioning in question period or in the public accounts committee was to expose a government's missteps on a particular issue or the information that it had previously concealed from the public. Questioning in its simplest form helps the opposition parties expose the worst of a government presumably so that voters know what they're getting if they should elect that government again. The other key tactic available to opposition parties is filibustering. Questioning happens all the time in the legislature, but filibustering? Filibustering is much less common, though much more dramatic. It takes more of a commitment and a whole party to execute. Filibustering happens when MLAs use the rules and procedures of the House and its committees to delay the passage of a bill they oppose. It's meant to show the voters just how much an opposition party cares about an issue. It's meant to show them that this party is willing to stay up all hours of the night and hold the government's feet to the fire until they do the right thing. And again, to draw prolonged attention to the fact that the government is doing the wrong thing. It's not much of a tactic for changing the government's position on an issue. We didn't hear many MLAs talk about filibustering, and it wasn't a question we asked them about directly, but if you watch the legislature enough, you'll see that it happens, and they all partake in it. There are two main places that filibustering happens in the Nova Scotia legislature. The first place is the House itself. You know, we could talk an hour. Every time we stood up, we could talk an hour on... If we were debating a bill, different stages, we could, we could talk. That's Robert Chisholm, talking about his experience after he was first elected in the early 1990s as a part of a three-person NDP caucus. You know, on issues like uh, the privatization of Nova Scotia power happened then, eh? In 92. Mm-hmm. It was 92 under the Conservatives. Right. And we debated that. Now, I, th- you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if it was 24 hours a day, but it was, 
at least till midnight on many days, and we just debated it and debated it and debated it. And, you know, the stories of John, I don't remember this, John, um, uh, John Holm picking up a, you know, a telephone book and, you know, and speaking for an hour about something, you know, about some names and that kind of stuff. And Filibustering isn't glamorous work, but MLA's staying up around the clock, reading phone books, is a story. We used to have files. We had a great, great research team, and we used to have all these files and all this material. You couldn't be, rep- you know, the speaker would, would, uh, you know, would try to rein you in terms of being repetitious mm-hmm. making the same arguments and that sort of thing so yeah you really had to be creative and and uh and, and focused at the same time long-winded mm-hmm. so we, we i mean we so we we filibustered you know i mean i've got a i've got a uh, uh mckinnon cartoon on my wall of uh um of of alexa and john and i the, the filibusters right and with that get anything done? Was that something that, uh, you know, would the government cave in to requests you'd made to avoid having to listen to you filibuster? Uh, I don't remember. Hmm. I mean, we did it, right? Because you, I mean, you do it to, you know, to give people, you know, people outside to draw attention to the issue to, hmm. I mean, that's what we always did, right? It's, um, and there's always, you know, there's always the argument, you know, what in the hell are you doing? Why are you doing this? Nobody cares. But, you know, if you believe in the issue enough, you know, you try to hold, slow it down. You try, you know, hope that something will intervene. Hope that the other side will mm-hmm. will get so annoyed at you that they'll make some changes. Um, sometimes it happened. I, I can't remember any specifics. The second place filibustering can happen is in the Law Amendments Committee. At its best, the Law Amendments Committee is a place where any regular Joe can come and speak on a piece of legislation as it moves through the House of Assembly. As its name suggests, it's a chance for MLAs to revisit a piece of legislation and propose amendments based on what they hear from citizens and experts. A bill, after second reading, would get referred to the Law Amendments Committee, and that the Law Amendments Committee would hold public hearings on the bill where the public had an opportunity to come and and present their views on the legislation to the members of the Law Amendments Committee. Sometimes there would actually be amendments that would be entertained at the committee as a result of the issues raised by the public. I've always learned things from from uh, the members of the public who came to comment on on pieces of legislation as it uh, as it went through. Uh, that that is a very valuable part of how we uh, we run our legislature, and for the most part, the the three parties, in my experience, uh, dealt reasonably with each other around the law amendments uh, table. Um, uh, the opposition parties had their amendments to make and we would debate them uh, and uh, there would be responses and uh, it would go back and forth. Um, and for the most part, it, it was a sort of decent, uh, decent, uh, decent process. But it was rare that meaningful changes were introduced at this point. Uh, but uh, by and large, uh, no. By and large, the process is more about refining legislation and the opposition might make some suggestions and you know, they, and they have different degrees of commitment to the changes they're proposing. But uh, no, if you go to law amendments, uh, you'll find that most of the bills go through at one sitting. Unchanged. Unchanged, yeah. 
To be clear, we heard from XMLAs that the Law Amendments Committee is a legitimate space where discussion and debate on legislation and changes to it are entertained. But that doesn't mean it's a space where filibustering can't take place. Filibustering happens when anybody takes an action that delays or obstructs something from happening that can't really be prevented. It too has a history as a legitimate form of protest. But an inclusive definition of filibustering would also include some of the testimony that happens at the Law Amendments Committee. It's just that in this case, it's up to citizens to do the filibustering. Opposition parties typically do two things that help turn the legitimate work that happens at Law Amendments Committee into an example of filibustering. First, they can go out of their way to ensure that there's a full roster of citizens ready to present to the committee on the bill that they're trying to protest. And second, Opposition MLAs can help maximize the amount of time a witness testifies for by asking as many questions as their time will allow, while government MLAs often remain silent, sitting on their hands, and asking no questions of those witnesses. When this happens, the government MLAs will have to step in and limit the number of presenters and even the amount of time that those presenters may present for. It's inevitable, but in that sense, stacking the list with speakers opposed to a bill ensures that it's the government who must take action to limit debate and act as a silencer, something that is unlikely to play well in the press. Filibustering in the legislature or at committee is in one sense a demonstration of the absolute power that a majority government has in the legislature in Nova Scotia. It shows that all that a minority party can do is delay the actions of the majority government. On the other hand, it's also a demonstration of the limits to that power, that even when a government has its mind made up, there are still protections for the minority voice, to ensure that if the majority is going ahead with something that's not okay with the minority of lawmakers, that that minority can make it inconvenient for them and ensure that their voices are on the record, even if they're just reading pages from a phone book. That is this week's episode of On The Record Off Script. Thanks for listening. If you haven't subscribed yet, make sure to do so. You can do it in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, uh, any of the other podcast catching apps. If you do it in Apple Podcasts and you've recently updated uh, your iOS to the new uh, iOS that Apple came out with, it got way easier to do a rating and a review of a podcast in that app. So while you're there, make sure to, to give the podcast a review. It really helps the show. Thank you to our sponsor, HelloFresh. Go to hellofresh.ca slash on the record to get 50% off your first box. If you like the podcast and you want to keep hearing it, go to offscript.ca slash donate. Sign up to contribute three, five, or eight bucks a month. Each dollar goes directly towards the cost of production for this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode next week. We've only got a handful of episodes left in the story of former MLAs that we're telling. And then after that, I'm really curious about what people who are currently listening to the show would find interesting. Springtide is committed to helping people uh, lead and make change in politics with their integrity intact. And uh, we're looking to broaden our scope and broaden our audience to people who are interested in politics, but more than just what happens in the legislature. Um, in addition to the other new podcast we'll be coming out with shortly called Govern Yourself Accordingly, which is meant to reach uh, a much broader uh, audience than just Nova Scotians. We're also interested in, in keeping what we're doing here in Nova Scotia alive um, and supported through this podcast. So um, if you're in Nova Scotia and listening, which I assume most of you are, um, and there's things you want to learn about, things you want to hear about, 
conversations you'd like to uh, listen in on uh, as we have given you the opportunity to do so with uh, our interviews with former MLAs, um, then we want to hear from you what would be helpful for your own understanding, for your own engagement, for your own awareness uh, that you can bring into your political life here in Nova Scotia. So if you have ideas, um, thoughts you'd like to share on the future of this podcast after that, feel free to send an email to us at offscript at springtide.ngo. Thanks for listening. See you next week.